Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event looking at how the government can make good use of evidence in designing its policies on levelling up. I'm the IFG's Chief Economist, Gemma Tetlow. I'm very pleased you can join us today to discuss this topic. The government has big ambitions for improving economic performance and improving well-being across the country, particularly in areas that have historically lagged behind. But it's going to be doing this without vast quantities of money to throw at the problem and tackling a problem that it's certainly not the first government to try and deal with. So I'm really pleased that we're able to discuss today with our expert panellists how the government can best go about gathering and using evidence on what works for levelling up to make sure that public money is best targeted in this endeavour. To help us discuss this today, on my far right, we have Lucy Moore, who's the evaluation lead for the Evaluation Task Force in the Cabinet Office. On my right is Ruth Kelly, who is the Chief Analyst at the National Audit Office. On my left, we have Danny Mason, who is the Head of Policy at the What Works Centre for Local Economic Growth. And on my far left is Thomas Pope, who is our Deputy Chief Economist here at the IFG and leads our programme of work on levelling up. So a few brief uh, housekeeping things before we uh, get started. Um, welcome to everyone who's here in the room. For you in the room, if you'd like to ask a question when we get to the Q&A section, you can use the traditional hand up method, or you can use uh, the Slido function if you would like to do that, if you prefer to ask a question anonymously. Um, for those of you watching online, please do start sending your questions using the Q&A panel on the right-hand side of your screen. If you see a question that's already been asked that's similar to what you wanted to ask, please upvote that question so we know that it's popular. And if you are happy to tell us your name and where you're tuning in from, please do, because it's always interesting to know who we're talking to. Uh, today's event is obviously on the record, and the video and audio recording will be available on our website uh, from, uh, well, within the next 24 hours. So without further ado, um, Ruth, let me come to you first. The NAO has done a couple of big recent reports, one looking at evaluation of government spending and another looking at local economic growth policies. What do those tell us about how good the government is about learning about what works and what can be done to try and improve levelling up? Yeah, no, absolutely. And to say it's really nice to be here today and, and in person too, which feels quite, quite novel. Um, yeah, so we looked at both the question of evaluation across government as a whole, and then we also looked at um, the sort of the more narrow topic of, of evaluation within the context of local economic growth. Um, and I think probably the, the, the thing to start with is to say that we think evaluation is absolutely fundamental to making well-informed um, and sort of well-evidenced decisions, learning what works, uh, being able to look at an intervention and understand how it can be improved, and also obviously from, from our perspective as, as auditors um, to be able to, to you know, for the purposes of accountability, which is really, really important to us. Um, but despite that, what we found was that really much of um, government spending, government activity is not evaluated or it's not robustly evaluated. Um, and just an example of that, uh, the, the Prime Minister's implementation unit looked at um, the, the, the spend within the government's major projects portfolio, which is about 430 billion, and found that only 8% of that was, was robustly evaluated and 64% had no evaluation plans at all. So, you know, really quite a, quite a big gap there. Um, and that's something which then plays over into the, the local economic growth space um, where you know, the government really has quite a poor understanding of what works because its, put, its policies haven't been consistently evaluated. And that's despite, there's been at least 55 separate initiatives since 1975, 18 billion spent on, on local growth initiatives um, in the 10 years from, from 2010 
So really a, a huge wasted opportunity. Um, and I'm sure we'll get more into this later, but there, there are lots of quite deep-seated barriers to this. Um, things like, you know, just, just at, a very, at a very high level, sort of a lack of political engagement, um, a lack of understanding of the, the value of evaluation by senior leaders, um, things like uh, a lack of incentives for, for departments to produce and use evaluation evidence, and then not much in the way of consequences when, when they fail to do so. Um, also difficulties in building an evaluation at the start of, of, of policy making, so getting evaluators involved right from the get-go. And then, of course, sort of on the supplier side, capacity issues, not, not enough skilled evaluators, and the perennial difficulties around data and data availability. So, you know, fairly gloomy picture, but I think um, what's really nice to see is that there's a real sense of momentum growing around this. Um, things like the creation of, of the evaluation task force, which I'm not sure we'll hear from um, more on, um, the fact that this, the, the Treasury really looked to base some of the funding decisions made in the, in the, spe the last spending review on the quality of evaluation evidence. And from DLAC's perspective, we, we do see a commitment to, to improving monitoring and evaluation, but, but all still you know, fairly early days. Danny, I mean, obviously levelling up isn't just about economic growth, but that is quite a significant part of what the government's trying to do. What's your take <coughs> on how good quality the evidence is at the moment on what works there? So I think, broadly speaking, the evidence base is fairly weak. If, if we look compared to something like education or health or even crime, we know a lot less about what's effective in delivering the outcomes that government wants. Um, if you look, and when I say this, I should say I'm, at the What Works Centre, we look at impact evaluation evidence. So we're interested in causal evidence that mm -hmm. shows that something's had an impact. So there's obviously a much wider and very interesting evidence base that can be useful for policy design and development. But when it comes to knowing what's effective, the evidence base is relatively weak. So in the past at What Works Growth, we've divided economic growth policy, I guess, into three areas. So things you do with people, things you do with businesses and things you do with places. And very crudely, I would say the evidence on the things you do with people, like employment training, is not bad. There's a pretty good DWP evidence base there. The evidence based on things you do with businesses is okay. There's some stuff in there. And then it's the evidence based on the things you do with places, which is relatively weak. Uh, one really interesting thing about the evidence base is, is a sort of lack of depth. So... I used to work at the Education Endowment Foundation. When it comes to the evidence on what works in education, there's enough different studies over a long enough period of time to draw general messages about the types of things that are more and less effective. The evidence based in local growth, I think, tends to say, this tends to tell us useful messages about a particular intervention, but not those kind of broad messages that you can draw out as you help to develop new policy. And then one thing that's worth mentioning is that the evidence on cost effectiveness and value for money is really poor. And that's so interesting when you think about the amount of time and effort that's put into business cases and cost benefit analysis up front. Very interesting. Um, Lucy, as Ruth mentioned, the Evaluation Task Force is a relatively new institution within government. Can you tell us a bit about what this new push is, how is government trying to build evaluation more seriously into policy making now? Sure, thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, as uh, Ruth mentioned, the Evaluation Task Force was set up about a year ago and um, we, we are sort of part of what is 
trying to be a step change and a culture change in government in terms of how government does evaluation and uses evidence. Um, so um, we the evaluation task force where I work, we work through kind of three main channels. So we work with uh, treasury spending teams. So obviously ministers are the people who decide what the government spends money on, but the treasury spending teams are the people who provide ministers with advice on that. So we work directly with those teams to try to make sure that they're using evidence when they're generating that advice for ministers. And that in turn should incentivize departments to generate and present the evidence uh, more thoroughly when they're presenting, when they're putting in bids to the spending teams to say what they would like to do. Um, so we work with treasury spending teams. The second group that we work with is we work directly with departments. So we have um, to our top 10 priority policy areas of which leveling up is one. And so we work with departments to try to make sure that any new programs that are being launched in those areas either already have a strong evidence base um, or if they don't have a strong evidence base that we are using this, uh, the rollout of these new programs to generate that evidence. So by testing whether the programs are effective or not. And then the third sort of stream of work that we have is around transparency. So we're trying to build an online registry for all government evaluations. So there will be kind of one place where you can access all UK government um, evaluations and evidence. And we're also trying to push that evaluation plans or protocols or strategies are put on there before evaluations are conducted. So there's kind of transparency, um, you know, that we've said we're going to evaluate this. Um, and so obviously if the results are negative, you still need to publish them. <laughs> Very interesting, lots more that'll be interesting to hear more on in a second. Um, Tom, you've been leading our work programme on levelling up. What's your take so far on whether the government's plans are learning from the evidence that we do have and are they building in opportunities to learn from what they try? Yeah, th thanks Gemma. I think the first thing to say, and it sort of draws on what Danny said, is that there isn't a sort of off-the-shelf blueprint that you can say, here is the set of policies that if you just did those, that would definitely deliver levelling up. And that's for a whole series of reasons around the difficulty of evaluating these policies, but also the fact that the context really matters and you know, how far can you draw on what the German government in East Germany did, say, for today. And any particular policy is going to differ by context. One thing that comes to mind with levelling up is lots of, say, transport policy in the past has been in a world where most people have commuted five days a week to work. Um, we may not be in that world in the future, so the, the context matters. But I think it, it, that doesn't mean that you can't say anything. And I think, actually, if you look in specific policy areas, actually, there is evidence that the government is learning from what evidence is there. So I think skills is a really good example of a policy area where actually the evidence base has come on a lot in the last few years, partly by um, the government making data available to external researchers. And I hope we'll talk a bit more about that later. And that shows actually really good returns to sort of high-level, non-university kind of apprenticeship qualifications. And the government is really investing in that. And similarly, if you look at the sort of overall plans on transport, say, it's all, all designed around trying to get more people into cities, kind of building agglomeration benefits, which again, I think fits with um, at least the, the majority of the economic evidence in that space. And I suppose stepping back from project evaluation and program evaluation, one of the problems that we've identified and others have identified in regional economic policy in general has been problems of churn and the fact that policies sort of come and go very quickly with administrations, different um, bodies come and go. And 
if you look at the white paper, you'd probably say it was quite light on policies, but it went very heavily on trying to get the system reform right. Um, and it explicitly acknowledged that this problem of, of churn was there. So I think actually, um, kind of stepping away from what specific policies work, but in terms of getting the structure of government right, I think the government is at least trying to learn from mistakes of the past. As to how far there are plans in place to evaluate better going forward, I think that the fact that Lucy here is you know, a, a, very, a very good sign of that. You know, the evaluation task force is a very positive move. And certainly if you read the white paper, there's lots of good rhetoric about um, how important evaluation is. I think it's probably fair to say that from, from the outside at the moment, we haven't yet seen how much impact um, there's going to be. And similarly, there were, I think, positive signs with the, the outcomes framework around the spending review last year. Again, I think we'll see more as we get new outcomes this year as to how much sort of evaluation is being embedded in that. So I think on, on that second part to your question, I'd say positive signs, but um, early days. Right. Um, so I want to pick up on something that I mean, several of you have touched on, which is the paucity of evidence on the existing base. But to, to what extent does this reflect just how difficult it is to evaluate these types of policies? Perhaps we can particularly focus on local economic growth policies. And to what extent does it reflect just a lack of effort in the past in trying to do this? I don't know, Ruth, if you want to start. Yeah, I, mean, I, I can sort of talk generally on this. I think you're right. It is, it is a really complex area to evaluate. You know, these are, these are sort of really outcomes which often take a long time to, to, to come into force or, or to, be, to be seen. Um, it can be really difficult to disentangle the impact of a particular policy from everything else that's going on at that time. So, so it is difficult. And I think what that, what that really emphasizes is the need for the right analytical resources and capability. Um, but I think you can't, you can't lay the blame all on the fact that it's a complex and a difficult area. Because if you look at cross-government and if you look at you know, in many other uh, domains or in subject matter areas, that you have the same lack of evaluation that's happened historically. So I think there is a, there's a lot to do with um, those kind of supply side and, and demand side barriers, which are common in many areas, and it's not just local economic growth, though perhaps from a technical perspective, and you know, I'm sure you know, from Flanagan's name, but more about that, I'm sure you know, it, is, it is one of the more challenging areas to look at. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I think that um, uh, simply comparing places is more difficult than comparing people. So when we do things like employment interventions or skills interventions or schools or health, you can compare one group of people with another, and that's your basis for evaluation. And doing that with places is harder, particularly in cases where you have one place where it's happening. You would never have a medical intervention that one person received, and then you'd be evaluating it. So I think there are technical problems. There are practical problems of coordination when you're working with places rather than people. Um, and then there's something I think really interesting about the current model of um, of government spending on levelling up. So obviously a lot of spending on local growth goes through all the other different things that government and local government does. But with their current uh, pots of money like the UK SPF, the levelling up fund, um, the towns fund, you've got a central pot uh, devolved to local areas and they can spend it on what they like and to date they can evaluate it as they see fit. So you kind of have a sort of misalignment between where the demand for the evidence, such as it is, sits, and the incentives and the barriers to evaluation at the local level. 
you don't have that with you know sort of 20 years ago when you've got something very sort of centrally defined like the NDC the New Deal for Communities or something like that so there's a new challenge there of what you do when it's central government that wants to know what works it's local government that have to take their reputational risk of finding out whether their chosen policies worked they really lack capacity and capability in the area of sort of commissioning evaluation and that's not because of any weakness with local government so much as a, just a limitation of capacity and you know as we know lots of cuts in that capacity in the last 10 years or so and then the bottom line is even if a local authority decides to evaluate something finds out that it works there's no guarantee of them being able to carry on doing it which is ultimately why central you know where we think centrally we want to know what works so we can carry on doing what's effective and stop doing what's ineffective but the POTS model doesn't even allow that so the incentives and barriers at the local level are really not aligned with a central desire for more and better evaluation of what works on the ground. Lucy, is there anything in your kind of model of what your team are doing that would address any of what Danny's talking about here? Sure. So I could talk a bit about the UK Shared Prosperity Fund. So that's um, the latest kind of pot of money in, in um, the way that Danny was describing it. So it's going to be £2.6 billion over the next um, three years, and it's expected to be about £1.5 billion per annum in the future, going to local areas. Um, and there are some sort of guidelines about what the money can be used for, but broadly local areas have a lot of um, say. And that's sort of also part of the, the levelling up white paper is devolving um, decision-making to local areas. So um, for the UK Shared Prosperity Fund, we've been thinking about doing evaluation in kind of um, three tiers. So there's evaluating the fund as a whole, and that's quite difficult, because that's kind of trying to answer the question, you know, what would have happened if there was no UK Shared Prosperity Fund? And obviously, all local areas get the money, so there's no counterfactual. So quantitatively, that's very difficult to do. So we're mostly thinking that we would look at that qualitatively. But what we are trying to do with, the, with this fund, which is different to what's been done in the past, is we're trying to um, look at what interventions people are spending the money on and um, try to work out, can we kind of group, so if, if for example, 10 places are pedestrianising their high street, can we find 10 similar places that are not pedestrianising their high street and have a comparison group and try to estimate the effect um, of pedestrianising your high street. And we can do that with, you know, lots of different interventions. So we're waiting to see what people choose, their, choose to spend their money on, and then we're going to try and work out groups of um, areas or people who are receiving or benefiting from some intervention and try to find a counterfactual group. And we're doing that at the central government level rather than just asking local areas to each evaluate their own individual projects. Okay, so you're getting around some of the problems that Danny identified yeah. by doing this evaluation at the central level rather mm -hmm. than devolved. Yeah. And just how, how will that work? There are lots of different levelling up type funds out there and we may see more coming along. How will that work in aggregate if, for example, I don't know, one area is using a bid to the levelling up fund to do one type of thing and a different area is using a bid to the shared prosperity fund to do a similar type of thing. Are you also going to be thinking about how you evaluate similar interventions funded through different mechanisms? Yeah, so we really need um, to understand kind of what is happening in each place. And uh, there's a new spatial data, data unit in the Department for Leveling Up, which is trying to collect uh, data on 
um, investment, so what are people spending their money on? So that will be kind of crucial. Um, that's a kind of data issue in terms of um, a barrier to doing these kind of evaluations. Right. I mean, I suppose there's, we've talked about one of the potential problems of local areas doing this all individually, but potentially it also gives a lot of opportunities. We have a lot of experimentation going on. Do you, are any of you confident that this is going to generate lessons that we can learn from or what, what needs to happen to make sure that we do kind of learn from this experimentation across the country? Well, it's really positive. The UK SPF prospectus, which came out a few weeks ago, is really positive in the opportunity that it provides to do that. Mm -hmm. it just, you know, some of the wording around what places can be required to do as part, as part of their, their, their bid. We'll wait and see whether that happens in practice. I mean, it's really interesting when government uses... I, I used to be a civil servant. It's really interesting when government uses the word experimentation and that sometimes that means trying something in a number of places and doing a robust impact evaluation. And very often it means just letting lots of places or lots of institutions do lots of different things and not really learning anything beyond some qualitative information about who enjoyed what. So, I, I, you know, that will be, the proof will be in the, in the pudding on that to some extent, I think. I think also there's a, there's a real challenge here um, when it comes to taking experimentation and disseminating it more widely. That's often where, where you get the next sticking point. Um, and we've seen some, there'll be an NAO study coming out quite soon looking at some innovation work that the Department for Education is doing, innovation in, in, in children's services, um, where there's been some very successful work done understanding um, sort of what works at, at local levels, but where the, the barrier then comes in is, is how do you then gather all that together uh, and, and sort of scale that up and spread that out across the country. And what we've, one of our, the barriers that we identified in our work is very much that, um, you know, there's, there's limited mechanisms for putting together an evidence base that's, that's easily accessible. When we surveyed uh, heads of policy profession at all the, the chief um, government departments, a large number of them said they, they cited as one of the main barriers the fact that the, the evidence base wasn't accessible to them. They didn't. They couldn't easily find relevant evidence when they needed it. So there's that that sort of feed that that the life cycle of evaluation, which is both carrying out the projects, gathering the evidence, getting it into an accessible and a, and a you know, easily usable base based on robust evidence, sort of robust systematic methods, um, and then feeding that back into policy design and figuring out how do you get that out then to the sort of the the, the coal face, as it were. And would the sort of system that Lucy talked about having a central repository help or is it something more than that you need someone with the technical knowledge to synthesize the evidence base to give that back to the policy yeah I think, I think we, you know you can't underestimate the, the importance of, of bringing that evidence together I think what we what we often hear from from civil servants and from policymakers is that actually they are overwhelmed by the volume of evidence out there there's just so much and they don't know what's relevant and how which ones they should be using and so it's it's bringing that together into a an accessible um, evidence base that's that's really critically based on, on, on expert synthesis. That's really important, um, and then policymakers can easily use that. Are there any models anywhere of who does that? Are we talking here about experts outside of government doing it, or is that happening within government? We we see that a bit with the What Works Centre. So that was kind of part of the reason for them <laughs> for them being created. Um, you know, they are obviously only in, in particular policy areas, and and there's no sort of uniform model for how they do it. Mm -hmm. We see it, um, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of capacity building going on in some departments. So for example, Bayes has got their, um, 
they're building a, a monitoring and evaluation database where they try and gather these the, the information together. So, but it's, it's fairly fragmented and, and there's multiple different approaches and I, I think there's, there is certainly scope for a bit more best practice and, and consolidation of approaches. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, that's what we're supposed to do and it's, like, it's, it's important and challenging for us to hear that, you know, I think the majority of civil servants in the departments that we serve, primarily levelling up transport and business, haven't heard of us and don't know where, where to find our evidence synthesis. The work that we do one-on-one -on -one with civil servants tends to, in my experience in the last few years, has been really effective, but it's not scalable that, you know, so being able to talk to an individual and tell them where the evidence, what the evidence base says and simplify it for them and provide a briefing note is great, but it's not scalable. The evidence based on what works with that dissemination and getting evidence used is also really weak. And you know, a lot of the things that we sort of immediately turn to, like communities of practice or newsletters or after hours seminars with professionals, the evaluations that have been done of those have not showed a huge impact on, on practice. So I think that question of how you do the dissemination once you've got the evidence is also really challenging. And another thing that I, I thought just as you were speaking as well is in the current context of devolving more sort of policy making and funding and decisions about what to spend money on to the local level, you're not just thinking about that capacity building in central government, you're thinking about that capacity building at local government level, which is, you know, another challenge. <laughs> I mean, Lucy, is part of, is part of the kind of work with Treasury making sure there are resources going along with spending powers to local areas to make sure they do have the capacity in place to understand the evidence and build the right policies? Is that Yeah. I think um, the... The issue here might be a bit about thinking about the quality of evidence because, you know, Ruth was saying in some ways there's lots of evidence, but Danny was saying a while ago there's very little evidence. <laughs> and I think what Danny's saying is that there's very little robust evidence on impact. Um, there's lots of qualitative evaluations of projects, um, but how much you can learn from that, um, how much you can apply that to other situations is debatable. and. Um, yeah, so I think that's kind of a, a, something to keep in mind. At the task force, what we're trying to do is we've, we've asked departments to look at their 20 areas of larger spend and to look at the evidence, um, the quality of the evidence for those 20 areas using the Nesta standards of evidence. So to really kind of say, like, do you actually have good quality, robust evidence based on evaluations that ideally use counterfactuals? Mm. And I should say maybe there's a link here actually to the outcomes, delivery plans, mm -hmm. and the sort of the, 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 the value framework that, mm -hmm. that Tom mentioned earlier, because that should be, if these are the priority areas for a department, that should give you good line of sight to what are the areas for which you need good evidence. Mm -hmm. um, it also gives certainty and a bit of visibility to, to the sort of the, the evaluation market, the third party providers, so they know where to invest in capacity, you know, where, mm -hmm. where, what are the things that are going to need to be evaluated and where. Uh, and that's something I think that DLAC has done well um, in, their, in their 21 ODP. They did talk about their evaluation priorities um, and what their evaluation activities were going to be and having that strategic approach is actually, it's, it's a really positive thing. It's a good starting point. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I, mean, I wanted to come back to this point that a couple of you mentioned in your opening remarks about the need for demand for evaluation. Someone at the top has to want it. Um, and it 
To what extent is this very individual dependent? Is there a danger that we're at a moment where we have some politicians who are bought into the idea that evaluation matters? So we'll, it'll matter for a while, but it will then fall by the wayside if we have a, a change of leadership. You... I mean, I think that's I think that's why you need institutions, uh, you know, like the evaluation task force. I hope that's not something that just you know falls by the wayside. Mm. You, it's absolutely about incentives, isn't it? So all the way through a department and then ministerially as well, the incentives to be doing something that has the best chance of delivering the outcome that you have said it will, like there's a lot that you can do institutionally to improve those incentives, I think. And I suppose that this goes back to the <coughs> various changes that the white paper is trying to make in terms of the way government works. I suppose one, one of the frustrations, I think, on the demand side for evaluation is often that it takes a long time. And if you're sort of cycling through policies so quickly, then by the time the evaluation is published, you've sort of moved on already. It's hard to see the, the relevance there. And I think likewise, if there's been quite a lot of discussion in sort of the devolution debate about how do you sort of provide more accountability, how can there be more accountability at that local level as well? And actually, there's a, I think the government could be sort of introduce evaluation as a robust part of that, you know, have good evaluation as a necessary component of kind of more flexible funding say, as a way to sort of institutionalise that, that sort of demand for evaluation a bit more. And then that, that's then in the structures and the way that government works with local government, which is probably less susceptible to, you know, does this particular Secretary of State, you know, did he study economics and therefore he loves reading causal studies? Mm. And that's, that's absolutely right. You know, we saw, you know, it wasn't a uniformly gloomy picture when we, when we looked at the evaluation across government. There is um, a lot of but there is a lot of sort of variability and inconsistency, and I think a lot that has to do with the tone from the top and whether uh, you know the departments which do it well or the policy areas that do it well tend to be because there's somebody there who really values evaluation. Um, and so what we what we've been calling for is really the sort of the the incentives the, and the, the oversight to be such that you, um, you you move away from being dependent upon an individual, uh, and also it's a, it's a change of culture in a way because I think quite often there's a sense that. Negative, negative findings from, from an evaluation are a bad thing, um, and they will, they will do somebody's career harm, when in fact it should be, you know, we agree that these are the outcomes we want. We're not clear at the best way to get to that outcome. Let's try multiple ways. The funding for the outcome doesn't change at the end of the day. It's just what you're putting your funding on, and that's probably a far more healthy way of looking at things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree with what um, Ruth just said. Um, you know, we don't, we need to kind of be um, honest that we don't always know um, how to achieve all the outcomes that we're trying to achieve and um, evaluation is one way of kind of testing different approaches to see if if we can't figure out how to achieve those outcomes. And do, you, do you think you're kind of building in processes now that will be hard for a few individuals to get rid of once it's there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the goal, like we don't, the ETF, um, the Valuation Task Force doesn't expect to be around forever. Um, you know, we're a task force. Hopefully, um, if we do our job well, we won't be needed in the future. And that the, the there'll be a culture change. Obviously, culture change takes a really long time, but we are trying to kind of set up the incentives and systems such that we won't be needed in the future. Brilliant. I'll go to some questions um, coming online now. And if you do have questions in the audience, please do stick your hand up. Um, so 
One question that has come in asks, are there countries that do evaluation of levelling up or other policies better, and what can we learn from that? Danny, I don't know if you've looked at other countries' experiences. Oh, well, that, that's an interesting question, actually. So, obviously, other countries don't call it levelling up, but if we're talking about sort of local growth and other place-based outcomes, um, what I know about that is that the evidence base, if you look across the evidence base in the studies that we look at, a lot of them are from the states. So, uh, the US... Um, maybe it's simply because there's sort of um, more different states over there, more scope for evaluation, or you know, but um, quite a lot of good evidence on things like uh, employment zones and uh, enterprise zones, things where you're changing the sort of tax in a, in a particular place and stuff comes from mm. from overseas. But but I don't know of a country that um, that that is kind of uniformly better at this stuff than we are. I'm, I'm sure they're out there, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I think the, U, the US case is an interesting one where I think we, we often say, you know, so what previous IFG workers said, you know, one and you said it, Gemma, that one potential advantage of devolution is that it's almost a policy lab and you learn more about what happens. And I think you know, the US, exceptional, very different in lots of ways, but it's a great example where there are lots of states that are pursuing different things in otherwise similar areas. So finding that counterfactual that Lucy was talking about is so much easier for, for policy there than it is, is here. And then you also have a very big sort of academic community that's, and actually quite, quite good data availability as well, the sort of access that um, external researchers have to, to government data in the US often is, is pretty good with, with you know, the necessary restrictions. So I think that, that is a, perhaps a, a very high level, but it's, it's a good sort of level to try and attain in terms of the potential benefit of, of devolution. But it's definitely not the case that you know, there are lots of countries that do this really well and the, and the UK is doing it really badly. So the, some colleagues of ours looked at um, the use of evidence in transport policy making and looked at a bunch of different case studies, mostly in Europe, and concluded that evaluation was weak in all of them. So I don't, I don't think it's the case that um, you know, the UK is doing particularly badly. And we, we've been sort of doing a review of, of the evidence in various different areas recently, and it's certainly not the case that there's lots of evidence from other countries that's robust and not much from the UK. You know, this, this paucity of evidence is a, is a kind of worldwide problem. It's not just a UK one. Lucy, did you, did you look at any other countries' models in sort of thinking about the, how the ETF is working? Um, so I think different countries do it differently. Some countries do legislate that um, evaluations have to, ha you know, every policy and program has to have some kind of proportionate evaluation. So that's not always an impact evaluation. The UK doesn't have that legislation. That's not something that the evaluation task force has been looking into at the moment. But I know that is the kind of the alternative, uh, stricter way, I guess. And does that have the desired effect, or does it create a lot of rather? I, I mean, I think. Um, it's not like, yeah, um, just like Tom was saying, I don't think there's, there's some countries that are just like amazing and they evaluate everything and they have a great evidence base and they know exactly what to do. I don't think that any country has kind of cracked that nut. Well, we did see in our, in our studies that what some countries do, and I think, I think Norway is one of them in Holland, um, they have, public, they have a, a publication by default approach um, and a public portal where evaluations are published, which we think is something we should be you know, copying and adopting, and that is something which the ETF is, is, is looking to, to produce, because that just really, it increases that scrutiny, um, and it also means that evaluation plans are then have to be followed up with, 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 the, with the outputs and, and, and the findings. Yeah. Um. 
I want to pick up on a point, um, sorry, I'll come to you in just a second, um, that a few of you have mentioned around data and what specifically, what sources of data would be really useful for evaluating, I suppose we particularly take local economic growth policies, and do we have more potential to do that now, given our data sources, than perhaps we did 30 years ago? Mm. I think maybe the, the, the starting point here is that you need a, a consistent set of metrics. Um, it's very difficult to evaluate across similar initiatives if you don't have that, and that's something which DLEC is committed to, but not actually you know, made, made much progress on yet. So I think that's a that, that's a sort of a, a foundational thing to get get right. Um, as Lucy mentioned, there is the, the new spatial data unit at, at DLAC, which is which is great to see. I think the the concern we have is whether we have data at a sufficient level of granularity to be able to monitor progress of initiatives as well as to to understand what the baseline is. And by the time we get that in place, it may be too late for the baseline. You know, these 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 initiatives are already on the way. Um, so I think there is. Uh, you know, some of the, the new analytical techniques gives you gives a lot, sort of, um, you know, some really exciting opportunities when it comes to evaluation. But but data availability is, is still a huge limitation. I think there were a couple of interesting things on this. If this is if this is your bag, yeah. um, <laughs> um, uh, the first is um, how well we can collect cross nation data mm -hmm. in the UK, which would allow us to do some of the kind of experimentation. And comparisons that you were talking about between Scotland, England, Northern, Northern Ireland, and Wales. Um, another really interesting thing about data at the moment is leveling up as opposed to economic growth. Some of the outcomes that are talked about a lot in the white paper and the UK SPS prospectus are around sort of well being, mm -hmm. pride in place. I have absolutely no idea how we would manage that, measure that at a local level at the moment. And, um, you know, you'd be talking about sort of large-scale boosted survey samples of new questions or existing questions on well-being but it's like a big it's a it's a huge area where the data simply isn't there to measure progress on very high level stated government outcomes um, and then another thing that we've come up against actually is the data availability for businesses so when you can't do experimentation when you're doing evaluation where you can't do an RCT and sort of give one group of people something and another group not then there are lots of things you can do by matching people with another group of people who are similar to them but didn't get the intervention. We're pretty good at doing that for things like employment training and education because we've got good data sets with a lot of information about people or children who we can then match with similar people. Our data on businesses is much poorer, so the quality of that matching and being able to say, the group of businesses who went through this scheme are similar to the other gr the group of businesses that we're comparing them with. Mm -hmm. That's much poorer quality. So there's some stuff there that, that would be helpful to develop. Yeah. And I, I do think where, where data has come a long way, sort of the capacity for evaluation and learning has come a long way, is in those people-based interventions with kind of big-scale administrative data matching up tax records, say, which in skills in particular, in kind of the, the last five or six years that the use of um, data kind of via DFE that has matched up education records to tax records has given us a huge amount of really robust information about returns to those that we didn't know before. And I think that, that's a great example of um, sort of how getting external researchers in with that real expertise can make a huge difference. And you don't need all of that expertise within government. But for place-based um, interventions, it's just, it's, it's much more knotty kind of, we talk, talked a lot about what the counterfactual is. And actually, I think it's much harder if you haven't gone into an intervention 
with an evaluation plan at that point and thinking actually these two places are quite similar at the point of doing the intervention. There's only so much that sort of data after the fact is going to help if you've not thought about it at the start of the intervention. You're always kind of playing catch up and, and worrying about all kinds of sort of endogeneity and, and problems like that. Yeah, and if it's just a, a chip in, um, DLUC has actually been really on the front line in some of that high quality data matching. So it's not that there's, you know, it's not that the department is not doing any of this well. It's just, as you say, that's on the people side, not the place side. The government is investing quite a lot in trying to improve data systems. So the ONS is building an integrated data platform. Um, and I think um, that's trying to bring in lots of different administrative data sets into one place. Um, so, and obviously anonymized and so, um, and to make it more widely accessible. Um, I'll take these two questions from the audience together. Thank you. Um, Chris Luck, I'm the CEO of the Shaw Trust, and can I thank you all for your thoughts and presentations? Um, it's made me feel slightly better, because my board is always saying, is, but is it making a difference? <laughs> so professionals struggling is uh, strangely comforting. Um, but two things come out of your presentations. One for me is the challenge for, of data evidencing for policy, which is future-looking and subjective. Uh, because it depends on your, on, on your sort of political perspective. And then you touched on data uh, evaluating for outcomes, which is necessarily backwards-looking, historical, and therefore may not be pertinent going forward. So that is in itself a challenge, as how do you use one to support the other and do it in a timely and useful fashion? Because we all know that the, and you touched on it, all of you, complex variables, dependent and independent, known and unknown, um, and trying to bottom out, have you, have you done enough in determining which of those to have enough of a sense of being data-driven enough? I think that's the challenge. There's no right or wrong answer. I am getting to a question, by the way. Um, but the government can't wait for all of this to happen. It's got to act because that is what the public demands. And nor can any of us wait to act. We've got to act with the best data that we have. But the question is, what... What can we do to be part of the data collect, data share, data exchange um, to assist whether it's government or other institutions? Because there's a vast amount of activity out there, both uh, nationally and in the shires. Um, and my other question would be is, you know, big data, we have to use big data better. Um, but access to that data for all rather than hoarding it. So, I think uh, I heard the special data unit mentioned. Well, there's an awful lot of geographical data there that could be really useful for other organizations, institutions, wanting to try and work out their contribution to the solution. Um, and then finally, in all of that, what is the threshold, in your opinion, for good or sufficient data to act? Right. I'll take this question as well. There's already quite a few questions there, <laughs> but we'll put them all together. <laughs> Thank you so much. Rayhan Hack, a Senior Policy Advisor at Local Trust and Campaign Manager of the Community Wealth Fund Alliance. Uh, this has been a really uh, intriguing debate, and I'd like to actually challenge some of the panelists in terms of the evidence base. I think there's actually a lot uh, in terms of what we do know works when it comes to levelling up regeneration left-behind areas. And um, I say that because there have been about 50, 60 years worth of regeneration initiatives that have been evaluated quite comprehensively 
by Cambridge University and then more recently by Onward in their neighborhood regeneration report published last year. And what it found, which was reflected actually in the white paper, in the white paper is that you've got to push money and uh, power down to the neighborhood level. You've got to have a focus on social capital as well as social infrastructure. And you've got to take a really hyper-local focus as well. And very crucially, you've got to empower communities to have that opportunity to lead change over a very long time frame. And uh, there's even a quote in the Leveling Our White Paper which I think nails it. Community-led regeneration cannot be achieved with a stop-start funding stream that first builds hope, then destroys it, leaving people less optimistic and trusting and feeling more disempowered than ever. So I guess it's not so much a question, but more of a point that I think there is actually quite a lot of learning in terms of what works when it comes to making leveling up a success for left-mind areas. And I should also say that local trust has got the practical learning as well, based on the big local initiative. So go back 10 years, the National Social Community Fund gave a huge chunk of money, uh, which local trust is distributed to 150 poor communities, giving them 10 to 15 years to spend that. And it's been truly transformative. And that's um, inspired the creation uh, of, of, of a community wealth fund proposal, which is also noted in the Leveling Our White Paper. So, yeah, I guess that's my point, just a bit of a challenge back to you in terms of kind of, I think there's actually a solid evidence base uh, to, to actually regenerate left-mind areas. Great, thank you. So, lots of questions there. So, there's the first set of questions around data thresholds for what's good enough data, what can the third sector be doing to help collect, share, exchange data, and how can they get more access to government data to also understand their interventions, I think, in summary. Um, and second sort of challenge, um, and I have to say, if we were discussing the difficulty of evaluating what types of policies work in local economic growth, I assume we layer on another additional challenge in understanding how the decision-making about what policy was chosen also impacts. So um, perhaps we can uh, also take that. I don't know who wants... Um, start with this. Uh, Ruth, do you want to? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get to pick off which way. <laughs> which way <laughs> so perhaps I think maybe maybe addressing your point about sort of the local level decision making and, and, and making sure that, that decisions are, are pushed down to the right level. Um, you know, I think we do see that in some of the new initiatives, the leveling up fund and so on, um, the department has tried to allow local leaders the greater freedom to, to identify their local priorities. I think a really key question here is, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the efforts to, to increase the decentralization of decision making is, was a good one, but there's a really important question for the department and government in general about what is the right level at which that needs to be made. Mm -hmm. um, so when it comes to sort of hyper-local hyper questions like regeneration, high-street regeneration, um, sort of local transport connectivity, you're, you know, the town is probably the right place for that. But when you start looking um, at, at, at sort of broader-based investment decisions around um, infrastructure, skills, businesses, that's probably at a, at a, at a you know, a, a bigger level and probably at sort of a, tra a travel-to-work level. And I think that's a really important question for the departments when they're thinking about at what level do they delegate or devolve decision-making down to, really having, having that in mind. Um, and some of the learnings from the past um, haven't necessarily been, been picked up. So when you look at, for example, the way in which um, Many of these things are delivered through competitive, multiple competitive funding pots. That does make it very difficult for um, local authorities or local areas to make broad-based decisions, make broad-based sort of investments across a range of outcome areas. Right now, they still have to 
be successful at bidding for multiple different funding pots. So there are some, there are still some sort of structural elements which which mitigate against some of the the, the learnings from from his you know, past evidence. Um, brilliant questions. I'm really I'm really excited. <laughs> so. Um, on what charities can do, um, the third sector organisations. So I guess, so in, in my understanding, an individual charity faces a lot of the same challenges that we've talked about for a local authority about the benefits and risks of doing high quality impact evaluation and finding out whether or not their stuff works. So it's a big ask, but the thing that you can do is evaluate your stuff um, as uh, rigorously as possible, find out what works. There are a small number of charities that are really good at this, really transparent, really proud of talking about what they've done that hasn't been effective as well as what has been effective. And I don't underestimate the risk involved in that, but if supporting this agenda is something that you're interested in, then that's something you can do. And also create the demand. So there's a government, oh, I've forgotten the name of it, the, uh, there's a government crime lab or justice lab which allows places that are doing reoffending interventions to submit to their data on their um, uh, uh, participants and get a matched sample and evaluate whether it worked. So, like, if demand for that sort of service was uh, really high in in cr crime, in employment, for all charity and third sector organisations that are doing that kind of thing, if we were asking for the government for it. Maybe we would get, you know, a similar lab in employment, in, which I think is, there's some discussion of it at the moment, and other policy areas. Um, in terms of what's good enough, I, this is a really interesting question and there's two parts to it. So when a decision is make, being made here and now, what's good enough, good enough is what you've got. And people who do jobs like mine and academics have a real responsibility, which they don't always fulfill, to say the evidence isn't perfect, but based on what we know, this is how much we can save. There's far too much fence sitting, and we really need to push against that. But I'm not therefore saying any old evidence will do. What you need to be doing at the same time is making sure that next time the question comes along, you have done the rigorous and robust uh, evaluation, and that sits with governments and all, all, uh, all others who commission that kind of thing. Um, question on, from the uh, local trust. So. I'm really glad you asked this because we've been quite negative and, and I, particularly from the What Work Centre, should be saying, yeah, there absolutely is stuff that we know. So we know quite a lot of stuff about employment interventions and things like apprenticeships. And we know all, also quite a bit, not only about the fact that those things work, but what makes them more and less effective. We know that um, physical regeneration needs to have a lot of money spent on it in particular places if it's going to deliver local growth. There are obviously many other benefits to physical regeneration. Uh, we know that sporting and cultural interventions based on the evidence that we have tend to deliver only those, those impacts which are kind of built into the programme. So you build a new museum, you have new jobs as a result of that museum. You're not likely to get a sudden wave of local growth on top of that. So we do know a bit about what works, and we should talk about that more. And one of the things we try to do is summarise that for government, obviously. But what I would say, to challenge the questioner, I don't know how good the evidence base is about devolving power down to the local level. Now, that's not a reason not to do it, but I don't think that is a really well-built uh, empirical evidence base. I think that's a, 
you know, we can look at the fact that we're an incredibly centralised country, we can look at what hasn't worked centrally, but I'm not sure, I think there's still a lot of work to do on, well, in fact, Jeremy, you said that about the decision making. Mm. Yeah, I mean, not, not too much to add to, to what Danny said there, I suppose, really, but I mean, I think that the threshold for sort of good or sufficient evidence, I think, as Danny says, I think, you know, we can't do anything about how well we've evaluated in the past and how much we know now, and as you say, government can't wait for for 10 years, but we can do something about how we go forward and the government can, you know, set in place good plans to evaluate in future and also set in place sort of staging posts that say, you know, after five years, we can look at this and say, is this working? In, in transport projects, you say, we'll do this first phase and we'll evaluate it and then we'll see, is it worth going on? So there is a way that you can kind of, if you acknowledge that you think, okay, I wish the evidence base was better now and it's not, but I have to do something. It doesn't mean you have to commit to 20 years of spending and say, well, we're definitely going to do that. You can build in a way to sort of learn along the way, if you like. And in terms of the sort of, of local um, and benefits of local, I, mean, I agree with Danny on sort of the kind of robust evidence base not being great for, um, for sort of the benefits of devolution economically necessarily. I think probably part of the challenge there needs to be, is the burden of proof the right way around, given how things have gone in regional economic policy for, for, for 40 years. And also then there are sort of, the, I suppose this goes a bit back to sort of there are other forms of evidence. There's sort of almost a rationale, sort of economic theory that you can develop as to why you'd expect things to work locally. And that's where I think Ruth's point about um, kind of what level of government you devolve things to is really important. I mean, a coherent economic geography that this is the place that it makes most sense to make a set of decisions. Lucy, do you have anything? I think that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Great. In that case, we've got another question in the audience. Thank you very much. I don't know if this microphone is on. Good. I'm William Duncan. I'm a visiting professor of public policy at Strathclyde University, and I happen to be in London today and able to come here instead of watching you online, as I regularly do. A simple question. Ruth, you said there were deep-seated barriers to evaluation. I wonder if you could elaborate on what they are and what might be done to reduce those barriers. And while you're thinking about that, if I could make a brief observation as someone who has done a lot of evaluation work. The appetite for it is related to the risk aversion, both within the individuals and in the organisation. With a career that's been both in local government and in the charity sector, I found that the higher level of risk aversion in the public sector made it a harder uh, process proposition to sell. But if actually you can convince the people who are delivering activities that evaluation will help them, it actually changes their behaviour and how they do it. So it isn't the big stick. Thank you. Yeah. Ruth, do you want to ask the question? Yeah, so, so we've, you know, we, we talked a little bit already about having the right incentives and, and sort of oversight arrangements in place. That, those are, I think as a starting point, that's one of the, the most significant barriers we've seen is that you know, historically there hasn't necessarily been um, the follow through uh, on the very clear requirements set by government of the need to, um, need to evaluate, but not necessarily then any adverse consequences for, for failing to do so. Um, and, and some of the, the levers which Treasury are now using um, around funding levers, uh, setting settlement conditions in, in the spending review and then actively following up on those, um, making sure that um, commitments entered into when, when a business case is put forward are then actually followed up on. Those are, are really crucial. Um, we talked a bit about transparency as well. I think maybe another one to, to mention is really 
bridging the gap between, between evaluation and policy, which is, which is a really tricky, tricky area. Um, and it's, it's ensuring that it's, it's almost evaluation by design. Uh, it perhaps plays back to, to the earlier question on, on you know, if your evidence isn't good enough, what do you do? Um, and I think that's about actually building and learning opportunities to learn um, into policy. So thinking about things like phased rollouts or, or piloting, um, getting your evaluators in at the start to, to help advise. This was something which um, in our surveys we found that um, you know, most chief, chief analysts and most heads of policy professions said that opportunities to learn were not being built into policy design. So that's a, that, that is, a, I think, a, a barrier that can be, can be worked on. Um, and then added to that is the, is the point around being able to, from a policymaker's perspective, being able to easily access those lessons. Um, and I think, um, you know, we talked quite a bit about data and, and capacity. I think the, the, the question of local level capacity is a really important one. There's been work done, uh, in fact, by Danny's What Work Centre, as well as by, the, by um, the, you know, other, other What Work Centres in the, in the area of, of education and elsewhere, which have found that local level, you know, often evaluation reports that come um, from local projects are not of a sufficient quality to be able to rely on that evidence. So there's a real capacity building um, uh, sort of thing that needs to be done here um, if, if we want to really get better at this, particularly in the context of leveling up with, with local level projects. Lucy, just to the point that was made about needing to sort of educate people in the public sector about how it might help them to do the evaluation, is that part of what your team is doing? Sure, yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with the point that, um, you know, a good way to promote evaluation, evaluation is not just kind of looking backwards and saying, did this work and, um, you know, do you get a gold star or not? Um, evaluation thinking should be built in um, before a program is launched. Um, so thinking, looking at the evidence and saying, what, what can we learn from what's been done in the past? And then while a program is being rolled out, you should be looking at, um, is it working? Um, how can it be improved? And then afterwards, looking back and thinking, like, did this achieve its goals? I think um, another way uh, um, is looking at different delivery models. So we're, we're trying to achieve this outcome, and here's sort of three different ways we can do it, and testing different delivery models to see which one is most effective. So it's not a question of, does this work? It's how do we achieve this particular goal? I think we've got time for one final question, so I'll take one of the ones that's come in online. Um, so an anonymous questioner asks, um, since the discussion around the politics of, for example, the levelling up fund gets messy, should we commit to radical transparency and publish all business cases for levelling up policies and schemes? Lucy, I'll start with you. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. I, 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 I could be wrong here, but I think the business cases generally are published. So the prospectuses definitely are published. Um, I think there is actually quite a lot of transparency around this. So we do publish, um, I'm pretty sure like it's published um, everything that the levelling up fund is paying for. I think that is published. So Do we see the full rationale that areas put forward for what they're expecting to achieve with their funds? Mm, like low, so the business the, for every single local area, hmm, I'm not sure if that is published. I think we publish what we do fund. Okay. Yeah. Great. Mm. Ruth, do you? So the, um, I think the, the, for the levelling up fund, the, the, the monitoring and evaluation strategy was published in December, mm -hmm. um, which is good. You know, we, are, we are all for transparency at the NAO. Um, I think 
for some of the other funds, um, the evaluation approach is still being, still being worked up and hasn't been published yet, which then really does also raise the question of retrospective evaluation. Um, I think, you know, in general, being more transparent about these things is very important. The National Infrastructure Strategy committed to um, all, all sort of major projects, at least, having their business cases published and then having an evaluation report published kind of um, five years after implementation. And I think that's something which should be considered not just for the major ones, but also what we, if a business case is produced, it should be published. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, we would be all for transparency you know, in general. I think one thing I would say is that we do have to be careful that we don't put ourselves in a situation where, this is a long way away, but we would never want to find ourselves in a situation where we will only fund things that we already know are effective mm -hmm. because there's absolutely a role for innovation in government policy making. It just has to be uh, innovation which we monitor and evaluate and measure so that we learn something about which of those innovations deliver the outcomes that we want. And I just, I, I think if you... You wouldn't want to put yourselves in a situation where every business case was critiqued if it wasn't, you know, if it didn't demonstrate what, how this is going to work and didn't allow room for that innovation. Yeah, yeah I suppose a, a broader point that's not quite a direct answer to the question, but you know, it's four, four technocrats on stage perhaps talking about, how, you know, we need to know exactly what's going <laughs> to work. But that doesn't mean there's no role for politics or that every politician should make exactly the same choice. You know, politicians legitimately have you know, different preferences and, and different objectives. Um, I suppose that the, the way that sort of politics coming into a process can be a real problem is when the objectives are not clearly set out, because at that point it's then very difficult to evaluate whether something's worked, because you say, well, it didn't work on this outcome, so oh yeah, I wasn't trying to achieve that outcome, I was trying to do something out else. So I think, you know, completely there's a, there's a role for politicians in, in policy making, but to enable that evaluation to still be effective, I think it's really important of being very clear, this is what we want to achieve, and then you can objectively evaluate it on that basis. Great, thank you very much. Unfortunately, we are right up against um, the end of our time now. Um, so thank you all very much for joining us and thank you to those in the room and to those online. Really huge thank you to my panelists, to Lucy, Ruth, Danny and Tom. And please do join us again for our next IFG event. Thank you very much. Thank you.